Well, indeed, good morning. It's a great pleasure to be back again with you for round number two, Redeemer Baptist Church this morning. Uh, I praise God for your attendance here with us today, uh, and I pray that you are uh, feel welcome, that you feel at home, comfortable, that you're able to worship. Um, so we come now to the time, uh, really, that we are here to give our attention to this morning, uh, and that is the study of God's Word. The Word of God is, is sufficient for, for our life. For, for teaching, for reproof, for instruction, and for salvation. Uh, it is the only way that we know about Christ. Uh, and if we're not going to be dealing with it and learning it and digging into it, knowing what it says about Christ, who he is, what he's done, and that's what we're going to begin to look at this morning in the Gospel of Mark. But if, but if we're not doing that, then I'm not really sure what we're doing. So turn to Mark chapter 1. We are committed to expositional preaching consecutively consecutively through books of the Bible. And, you know, you just need to know that up front. What that means is this, is that we are going to be doing exposition of the Scriptures in a very regimented and in a very structured way. The reality is that the Bible was given to us in books. It's not a collection of sayings. It's not nice, neat little tidbits. It's not moralisms. There are books like Psalms that are collections of poems. There are books like Proverbs that are uh, wisdom literature, as they're called, and they, they have some sayings and different things that are going on. But the reality is that, that God could have given us his revealed word in any form that he chose, and in his providence and divine wisdom, he chose to give us books that are in the form of propositions. And as with any book that you read, if you read chapter 9 before you read chapter 8 or chapter 1 and all that comes before it doesn't make any sense. And so I'm going to just sort of briefly give you three reasons that we take books of the Bible and we begin with the beginning of them and the context for them and the author and the audience of the books and we study them from beginning to end as God has given them to us. I'm going to give you three. There are many reasons, but I'm going to give you three why we do that. And the first is because, as I mentioned a moment ago, it is the most natural and correct way to study and understand the Bible. It's a book. It's a collection of books that make up one greater book, but in that collection, they are books, and they are given to us in that form for that purpose. And if we're not going to give heed to the form that God has given them, then we're going to miss the purpose for which they're given, you know? Preachers and churches get in lots of trouble when we start pulling things out of their context and reading chapter 9 before we read chapter 8 and trying to make it make sense to our life and to what's come before. So it is the most natural way to read the book. And then the second reason that we do that that is tied very closely to that is because it's the most natural way and it is uh, giving heed to the way that God gave it to us, it makes it much easier for you to understand, right? You, you, you know what I'm going to preach before I ever preach it. Guess what I'm going to preach next week? the next few verses in Mark. Newsflash. So you can, you can study ahead, you can read ahead, and you can hear, have heard what's gone before. Now that does not mean that if, if you miss this Sunday, you're going to be behind next Sunday. Each sermon is going to be a sermon unto itself that should be able to be applicable and understood by anyone, whether they've been to any of the previous. That being said, there is very real benefit in your ability to understand what I am doing, what my dad is going to be doing, in being here in the previous, and looking ahead and knowing where we're going. And the only way that that's possible is to study the Bible the way that we are committed to doing it. And the final reason that I'm going to give you is that it takes me out of the equation. Uh, it, it, is the way, it is the way that I am prevented from doing a sermon on tardiness because my wife made us late everywhere this week. Right? It helps me, it prevents me from 
it prevents me from preaching at you. This is not really about me, and it's not really about what I think you need to hear and what I think you should hear. It's about what God would have you to hear, and it's as little about me as possible. I'm to be God's mouthpiece, proclaiming the gospel and holding it before people and, and delivering and disseminating the word of God so that the Holy Spirit of God can do with it what he will. And the only way for me to do that is to try as best I can to take myself out of the equation. And the best way to do that is for me to just study whatever comes next. It also keeps me out of a lot of trouble because I cannot tell you how many times in my preaching ministry that people have come to me and been angry because they thought that I was picking on them, you know, or that I knew about something that was going on in their life. And so I planned that sermon to sort of get, get at that problem that they're having or at that sin that's in their life or that thing that I found out about. Uh, listen, you, you can't accuse me of that if I'm just preaching the next text. Uh, maybe God was dealing with your heart as he should have been. And you should respond accordingly. So all that to say simply that we are committed here at Redeemer Baptist Church to preaching expositionally through books of the Bible from beginning to end. Um, in light of that, we are going to begin and be in for quite a while the gospel according to Mark. And I'm going to give you some reasons in just a moment why that is. That does not mean, however, that there are not occasions where it is good and right and, and reasonable and beneficial, edifying for our souls to preach uh, a, a topic or an issue, or to deal with something. Um, last Sunday was Father's Day. And for many of you who are here that were with us last Sunday, uh, I did not preach in the book of Mark. And I preached from Psalm 103. And we didn't start at one and read all the way up through Psalm 103. And so there are occasions where that's, that's good and that's right and that's beneficial. But it is not going to be the norm of the preaching ministry here. So in Mark, uh, we're going to look this morning, the gospel according to Mark, we're going to look at the first eight verses, and we're going to try to see some of the major themes that come out of this book and really what, what the entire book is about. We're going to try to get a macro, not a micro, but a, a, a general understanding of what God is doing in this gospel and what this book is going to be for. How, what difference does it make to us? How is it going to change our life? How is it going to affect us? Why was it written? Essentially, the gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they are accounts of the life of Jesus. Uh, they account for this life in very different ways. They are harmonious in all of the things that they speak to and the different stories that they share. They are all in complete agreement. There's some debate about that, but I'm going to try to show you some of those things as we move along in the text. Uh, they are not history books. Uh, that's very important to remember because it, they're not always given in the right uh, order, temporally speaking. They're not, they're not always given in the right dates. Sometimes they're arranged, the events that take place in the life of Christ. Sometimes it's arranged theologically. Sometimes it's arranged historically. There are different purposes that each of these men wrote, and they're, they're, they're four different books by four different guys. They're, they're all inspired by the Holy Spirit, but they write with different uh, sort of agendas to different types of people, to different groups of people, and so they're trying to do very different things. Um, but we're going to turn and look at the Gospel of Mark, and before I make any more comments about that, I want us to pray uh, that the Lord would open our hearts and our minds, and then I want us to read the first eight verses together. So let's go to the Lord in prayer. Uh, Father in heaven, what a great privilege it is to be gathered together with your people again this morning. Uh, Lord, and as we gather for worship, we, uh, we, we plead with you to uh, open our minds and our hearts to be receptive to your presence here, for, for we acknowledge that you have promised to be here with us. And uh, promise to speak to us through your word as we sing it and as we pray to you and as we read and study it together. But Father, we also realize that we're incapable of doing that. We are, we are sinners. We are tainted by sin. We are clouded. Our vision 
is clouded by sin and we need you to remove that cloud and, and to give us sight. We need you to open our minds and give us wisdom. We need you to teach us where we seem unteachable. Um, Lord, we need you to work in us by the power of your Holy Spirit in a way that is miraculous so that we would be built up, so that we would be saved, so that we would be given the knowledge of the glory of your son, Jesus Christ, and his gospel, that we would be changed for eternity. So Lord, build us up this morning as we study together in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, so Mark chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. He says, The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in the prophets, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord and make his paths straight. For John came baptizing in the wilderness and preaching a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. Then all the land of Judea and those from Jerusalem went out to him and were all baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, There comes one after me who is mightier than I, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to stoop down and loose. I indeed baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. So the question that we have to deal with first is why are we going to study the book of Mark? If we were going to look at the life of Christ, which, which I think is important, and I'm, I'm going to maybe tell you why in just a moment, but, but why in Mark? There are many other places, I mean, just with the gospel accounts, there are three other books where we could go to look and to say, what can we learn about Christ and how can we walk through his life? And I think there are some really important reasons. And, and the main one of them, and this may surprise you, because the gospel of Mark is the least theologically driven or discourse teaching driven of all of the Gospels. It is an action-packed Gospel. There is very little teaching um, about Jesus. In fact, there is very little teaching by Jesus in the Gospel of Mark. Unlike all of the other accounts, they are discourse, teaching, theology driven, because they have agendas. But the Gospel of Mark the gospel according to Mark, it is less of those things than any of the others. And the reason is this, because the goal of the gospel of Mark is not so much that we, be, that we obtain all of this deep, in-depth information as much as it is that we get to experience a person. Right? If you want to get to know me, are you going to read a book about me or are you going to come hang out with me? Right? Are you going to walk daily in my life and see what I do and see where I go and see what I'm passionate about? Or are you just going to read about my sermons and my teaching ministry? Well, there's value in that, and, and there, I, I, I don't mean to diminish that. But the quickest way to get to know somebody and to experience who they are and what they're about is to be with them. And so the Gospel of Mark essentially is an action-packed account of what Jesus was doing. If you look at the very beginning... How does he begin? Let's, let's look. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. There's no genealogy like there is in Matthew. There's no uh, historical accounting of where Jesus came from. There's no birth narrative about, he, about him being born. There's no historical context of what was going on in the world around him before. Mark just says, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And you get down to the very next verses and Jesus is going to be being baptized. He's a grown man. There, there, there's a, he jumps right into the action, right into the life and the ministry of Christ. And I think that the best way for us to get to know Jesus is to experience Jesus as he is presented in the Gospel of Mark. It's the best and the fastest way to learn two things about Jesus, who he is and what he was doing. 
Who is Christ and what was he doing? And listen, that's a very debated topic in our culture today. It's very popular for people to want to know, well, who is the real Jesus? Right? There was a, there was a history channel. Right? Did, did any of you see that? There was a, a series on the history channel, The Search for the Real Jesus. There was, there was a book series and a, and a, and a, a, a theological agenda about eight, seven, eight, nine, ten years ago, the search for the real Jesus that that, his, that, that history channel thing was, was built upon. Well, what are they getting at? Well, who, who is Jesus? Is, is, is it the Jesus of the Bible? Is it, is it your Jesus? <laughs> I mean, is it my Jesus? When I talk to people about Jesus all the time, you know what I hear? Inevitably. Well, you know, I like to think about Jesus like this. <laughs> Right? Or, or to me, Jesus is. And, and I, don't, I, don't, I don't mean to be, I'm not trying to be condescending. But at the end of the day, it really doesn't matter who, it doesn't matter how you like to think of Jesus. I mean, if, if I tell you I like to think of my dad, you know, I, I, I know my dad, he's a great guy. But, but, you know, I really like to think of him as about six foot three, 195, lots of hair, and hates to jog and do the yard. And my dad would be like, that's great that you think about me that way, but that's not who I am. And I'm afraid that's where so many people in our culture and even in our churches live. We have created a Jesus for ourselves, and that's the way we like to think of him. But the reality is, when you look at there is a Jesus, and he is presented to us as he exists, and if we are going to know him, what he's doing, where he's going, and how we're going to be with him, then it is only going to be in the confines of who he actually is. If I like to think of dad as tall, dark, and handsome with a lot of hair, I don't really know him. And whoever I'm thinking about, it's not him. You know? Whoever we think about as Christ, if he does not reflect the teaching of the New Testament of who is Jesus, then it's not Jesus. We, you may call him that, it, it, but it's, it's an idol that we've created for ourselves that fits into our nice, neat box of what Jesus should be. Listen, this is reflected in so much of our theology one of, the, one of the main things that people struggle with is, well, I just don't think Jesus would do that. I have a dear friend who, the first time that I ever met him, had a discussion with me years and years and years ago that hell did not exist. And the basis for that argument was this, because Jesus loves people too much to not do that. He would not send anybody to hell. Well, on the one answer, Jesus doesn't send anybody to hell. People go to hell because they don't believe. But the other side of that is as an act of judgment and condemnation against, against their disobedience and against their sin and against their lack of believing in him, they do go to hell. And there is a hell, and God created it. So regardless of what we think about Christ and regardless of what boxes we put him into, we have to be very careful that what we believe in about Jesus is the way that he's presented to us in Scripture. So the gospel according to Mark is the best way, I think, to just experience Jesus. It's not all about deep theology. It's not all about teaching. It's an action-packed account of what Jesus was doing. He's going from one place to the other. He's healing these people. He's doing these miracles. He's rebuking these others. He's walking and talking, making friends, bringing in disciples, turning other people off. It's, it's blow by blow. It's, it's, it's non-stop. In, in fact, very interestingly, if you go to the very end of Mark, and we'll see it, there is no end. It, it, uh, there's no conclusion. The gospel just stops. <laughs> because you've got to go to Acts to see what happens, to see what happens next. Th- there is no completion. It, it, is, it is an action-packed account of what was taking place. Now, very quickly before we're going to get to kind of the meat of what I want to say to you from the text today, I think it's also important that we talk about who, who is Mark. 
who, who is Mark and what was he doing? Most people think that Mark was a disciple, one of the 12. Well, the reality is, until you get to Acts chapter 15, Mark is not even mentioned anywhere in the Bible. He's not a pastor. He's not a disciple. He's not a preacher. He's not a teacher. He's not a church leader. The only reason he's even mentioned in Acts chapter 15 is because Paul was going to someone's house, someone named Mary, and it was a very popular name in that time. And even in the New Testament, there are multiple Marys. And the only reason he's mentioned in Acts chapter 15 is so we'll know which Mary it is. Mary, whose son is John Mark. That's it. So he has this big house in Jerusalem, and evidently it was the house where the New Testament church was meeting in Jerusalem, which is pretty interesting. But he was not a teacher. What we do know, though, and I'm going to spare you the long history lesson, and I'm just going to tell you, he went with Paul for a while. He was, he was blessed by God to be a helper. That's all he did. He went with Paul and Barnabas on their missionary efforts to preach and teach the gospel. And in God's providence, he was granted the opportunity to walk alongside them, to learn from them, to be taught by them, to be a part of their ministry. He wasn't a teacher. He wasn't a preacher. He was a regular guy that God gave this incredible opportunity. And you know what he did? When ministry got hard in Paul's life and persecution arose, Mark checked out. That's a pretty sad testimony. He got scared. He left. He disappeared for about 10 years. Well, in that 10 years, we know that he, in God's providence, became one of Peter's closest confidants. So that later in the New Testament, Peter refers to him as my son, Mark. Well, man, can you imagine having the opportunity to be, to be Paul's companion, the Apostle Paul, the greatest preacher that's ever lived? And, and then also to be the son, spiritually speaking, of Peter, the closest friend of Jesus Christ. And, and the Gospel of Mark, coincidentally, is his accounting of Peter's confession of who Jesus is. But so in that 10-year period when he sort of disappears, he doesn't just fall by the wayside. He gets to walk and go with and be alongside Peter and learn from him and be a part of his ministry. And then something happens and there's restoration. And Paul tells us later in the New Testament that he wants, uh, he wants them to send Mark to him because he is helpful to him for ministry. Now, th- there is a point to that. The sermon's not a- about this. But aren't you glad that people that get scared and fall away and aren't preachers and teachers and aren't impressive people. God chose a guy like that to write one of the books of the New Testament. The reality is the only kind of people that God had to choose from were broken, inept sinners. That's why I'm standing here. It's why Andy stands here and sings. It's why you're here this morning because we're all broken, inept, incapable, unworthy people that God chooses to do incredible, miraculous things. And that's the story of Mark and who he is. But, but why was he writing? Well, he was writing, we, we find out that the, the climax to the book of Mark comes in chapter 16 with Peter's confession. And, and you remember these words, he says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. See, there's this theme all through the book of Mark that nobody knows who Jesus is. The disciples don't really get who he is. The, the Jewish community <clears throat> doesn't have any idea who he is. The religious leaders are constantly re- being rebuked because they misunderstand who Jesus is. There is a group that does know who Jesus is, the demons. They always get it right. They have the best theology in the book. And so there's this building theme that nobody knows who Jesus is. Nobody really understands. They have all of these misconceptions, as I would argue there are in our culture, about who Jesus is and what he's here to do, except the demons. But then Peter gets it. And he says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And that's the turning point in the book. And then from that point forward, it's going to be about the cross and what he's coming to do. And so the book is written for us 
He, he writes it to Gentiles. It's not a Jewish book, which is great because there's not tons of Jewish stuff that we don't understand. It's not a Jewish book. It's a Gentile book, and it's written to Christians in Rome. And he wrote it for the sole purpose so that according to Peter's account, firsthand account, of walking and talking with Jesus and preaching his name, being his closest friend, Peter understood who Jesus really was and what he did for him. And so he gives Mark this account who writes it down under inspiration of the Holy Spirit for this one purpose, so that we can all know who Jesus is. Listen, if, if you don't know that he is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and what that means for your life, then you don't know who Jesus is. And so we're going to study the book of Mark, We're going to read it as it's given. We're going to try to deal with the difficulties that are there for the sole purpose of learning who Jesus is. And I would argue that in these first eight verses, we're given an introduction to that. Most people preach these first eight verses, and they say this is all about John the Baptist. This is not about John the Baptist. It's about who John the Baptist was pointing toward. What does he say? I mean, if you go even into verse 7, he came and he preached this, this ministry and this uh, repentance and belief and faith and come and be baptized. But then in verse 7 he says, There is one who comes after me who is mightier than I, whose strap, the strap of his sandal, I am not worthy to stoop down and to loose. I baptize you indeed with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. John the Baptist understood that even this text about him, even his life and ministry, that it was all about Jesus. And the Gospel of Mark is all about Jesus. Every story that's in it is to show us something about Christ. It's to teach us his person, who he was and what he was doing, his work, where he was going. And, and this is not really about John the Baptist. There's, there, there's, there's three things, and there really is one thing, and then two sort of attributes of that one thing that I'm going to share with you this morning. We get it right off the bat. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in the prophets, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, and here it is, prepare the way of the Lord. This text is about this reality. The king is coming. What what does John the Baptist say? There is one who is coming. And guys, if we don't learn anything else this morning or about this text, you must try to to grasp something of the, the reality, the depth, the weight of the reality that God came to be with you. God became a man and came to where men were. The king is coming. And and, and as we know, the king has come. He is coming to dwell among us. If you go to John chapter 1 and verse 14, John tells us the word, which is a reference to Jesus Christ there, the only begotten son of God, the word became flesh and dwelt among us so that in Him we would behold the glory of God. For if you have seen my Son, you have seen me. There's a reference here, this, this, this verse 2 and 3, Behold, I send my messenger, he says it is written in the prophets. That's a reference to Isaiah chapter 40. And I would, I would commend you to go back to Isaiah chapter 40 and to look there. That is, a, that is an express reference for the children of Israel in the Old Testament about the personal... Yahweh God. Because the question is, there is one who is coming. Who is he? Well, he tells us, it is the beginning of the gospel, the good news that he's coming, of Jesus. Well, Jesus was not, that was a popular name. Could have been anybody. Well, so who is it? The Christ. Well, there were people that would have debated that. And then he he clarifies further, the Son of God. Well, I talked last week about our sonship. God is our Father. Remember that? 
So that in some sense, though Jesus is uniquely God's son, for those of us that believe in him and enter in covenant with him, we are all God's children, expressly, uniquely, differently than all the rest of the world. So could that not mean that there's just some generic son of God coming? So he goes further and he makes a reference to Isaiah chapter 40 and connects the one who is coming with the direct prophecies that God himself is coming in the Old Testament. He makes the connection. When you go back to Isaiah chapter 40, what you find is that the word there for Lord, prepare the way of the Lord, it literally says to to, to make the road of the Lord straight. Make the road straight for the Lord. We're going to talk about that a little bit. But the Lord there, that's the personal name Yahweh of God that the people of Israel would not even utter. It's like Aaron. There was none other. It was not to be confused. And so what what he is trying to get us to see is that the king, the God of glory, is coming to be a man. That is an un that is an unbelievable reality and it changes everything. There are however a few things that I want to tell you about this. This is the one reality that sets Christianity apart from every other religion in the world. I want you to think about this. In every religion in the world, it's all about you attaining to some status so that you could be worthy to go where the God is. It's all about you becoming like God, or in many cases, becoming a God so that you can go be with God. Christianity is the only religion in the world where God says, you can never be like me, so I'm going to come be like you. don't, Don't forget 2 Corinthians 5, verse 22, what does it say? For he made him who knew no sin to become sin. He came and dwelt among us and became like us in the sense that he was born of sinful flesh, and, and, and inhabited sinful flesh so that he could redeem sinful flesh. It's the only religion of the world where we are not doing something to get to where God is. It is purely on the basis of God doing something to come and get us where we are. It's totally different. That's why legalism in our churches today all across Gulfport and all across Mississippi and all across the United States and all across the world, the legalism that's taught about how you just have to pull yourself up by your bootstraps and be a better person so that you can be acceptable to God, that's, that's garbage. And it's not helpful for any of you. That's like every other religion of the world. It's called moralism. You cannot be good enough for God and you will never be worthy of heaven to be in his presence. And so he fixed the problem by becoming one of us to come and dwell with us that he might come get us. It's the only religion in the world where God comes to us. We don't go to him. And if you look, even in the context, John the Baptist, who is the forerunner of Christ, and he's preaching about repentance and belief in him and professing, what's he telling people? You need to come and be baptized by me. Did you know also that it's the only religion in the world where someone else must do something for you? I mean, there are tons of religions in the world where there are washings. I mean, the the children of Israel, they, they wash themselves, ceremonially representing what? That they were cleansing themselves and preparing themselves for worship. Well, what does John the Baptist say? You cannot cleanse yourself. Come and be cleansed by someone besides you. It, it points us to Jesus. What's Jesus telling us? On the cross, what's he telling us? You cannot cleanse yourself. Come and be cleansed by me. It's an unbelievable reality. God Almighty, the creator of everything that is, the beginning and the end, the, the, the glory of the universe became a human being so that human beings might be saved. There are two Two things about 
this coming of the king that I want to point to you this morning. One is that the act of the king coming is an act of condescension. When we use the word condescending or condescension, we think about talking down to someone, being derogatory, almost as if uh, a bad thing. But what I want you to see is that it's a right use of the word as it is given here, and it's a right translation to, 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 to speak of what God is doing in coming in the person of Jesus Christ. The king is coming. God is becoming a man. That it is an act of condescension. That's a good word, and here's why. Because the reason it's derogatory for me to be condescending to you is because what it means is, in a bad way in our culture, that I'm going to get down on your level because you're just not on my level. <laughs> well, listen. God becoming a man was an act of condescension because he came to do something on our level. He had to come down to us. He had to condescend on our behalf. We could not go the other way. And, and so the scriptures, the New Testament, it talks about how he humiliated himself and took on the form of a man, right? How he did not see equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he was willing to set that aside for a time and to take on flesh, and to be limited in some ways in the flesh for a time so, so that he could redeem those that were in the flesh. So there is this act of condescension. And here's what I want you to see, that it is the ultimate act of condescension because the king, the judge, ends up being the judged. If you go into a courtroom, what judge have you ever seen get down and take the place of the judged and, 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 and render a verdict for death or for jail time or for parole? and then walk down off his bench and get in front of his bench and accept the judgment upon himself. What an act of condescension that would be. The judge is not in a, he's in a, a position of authority, and the one who's being judged is in a, a lowly, humiliated position because he's done something wrong. But in the act of becoming a man, the king coming, God coming to dwell among us, there was this act of condescension where the judge becomes the judged. Here's what I want you to see. Unbelievable here. This reference from Isaiah, he says, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you, talking about preparing the way for the one who is coming, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. It's make the road straight. Now listen, in the Greek, he uses the same word for road that every single time in the book of Mark that that word is used again other than this first reference. Every single solitary time, every one of them, 100%, that it's used elsewhere in the book of Mark, it is used to reference the road to the cross. Make straight the road of the Lord. The one who is coming, where is he going? To be slain. That's unbelievable. A straight path to judgment. An act of condescension. On our behalf, God becomes a man. The judge becomes a man that stands in the place of the judged. He is on, he's on a road to judgment to spare us from it. It's, it's, it's unbelievable. So first, it's an act of condescension. But secondly, uh, I think it's important that we see that it is also his coming is an act of condemnation. It's an act of condemnation. You see it even in this text. What is John preaching? repentance. See, there's a problem. And Jesus did not come to wipe over our sin. On the cross, and, and people, people misunderstand this, that, that is not a picture of God lifting up the rug and sort of sweeping your dirt underneath it and just covering it up. 
there, there is judgment and righteousness executed because of your sin and your wickedness and the evil that exists in the world that on the cross, Jesus is condemning our sin, but he is bearing the penalty for the condemnation. So that it's an act of condescension that is necessary because it is an act of condemnation. He does not come to just, it's not, it's not this panacea of peace so that everybody would just be happy, happy, happy all the time. That, that's not it. It's not that God just sort of looks over our sin and just, oh, y'all are really good people. You know, yeah, ask people, why, why are you going to go to heaven? Well, I mean, God knows I'm trying hard. And that deep down inside, I'm really a good person. No. Jesus came because you're terrible. And because I'm terrible. And because there was a judgment rendered against our sin that we must die. And his very coming is proof that we are condemned to die. But he condescends on our behalf to be the one to die for us. Man, what a beautiful picture. I want to read to you Romans chapter 8. You can turn there if you have your Bible. You can listen if you don't. I want to show you that I'm not making this up. <laughs> in Romans chapter 8 and verse 3, Paul's talking about how we are freed from sin. Right? The, the, the penalty of sin, the power of sin. We are no longer in bondage to sin. We are free from indwelling sin, made new in Christ because of what's taken place on the cross. So it's this wonderful, feel-good message about what Jesus has done for us on the cross. But listen to the words of verse 3. For what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, God did... By sending his own son, God became a man, in the likeness of sinful flesh, there it is, condescension, on account or because of sin, listen, he condemned sin in the flesh. So it's a wonderful and a terrible message all at the same time. That's why it says that the gospel in the New Testament is the aroma of life leading to life for those who believe. Because the act of Jesus condescending to the cross, the judge taking the place of judgment, it is the story of life for those of us who believe. But, but for those who do not, it is the aroma of death. Because, because Jesus is coming as an act of condemnation. It's proof positive that we're incapable, that we're unworthy, that we are terrible terrible sinners. The Gospel of Mark, this book that we're going to study, is all about Jesus. The turning point of the book is where Peter realizes you are the Christ. You are God Almighty. You're Son of the living God. You are the judge who became the judged, who condescended because of our condemnation so that we might have life. And Mark, Peter passed this eyewitness account onto this unlikely guy named Mark so that under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he could write it down and pass it on to me and you. So that gives us the point of the book for the purpose that we would all know that the judge has become the judged, that the king has come to bear the cross, the person and work of Jesus. And so I would just ask you this morning, who, who is Jesus? <laughs> uh, and, and, and I don't mean to be uh, demeaning, but it does not matter who you think he is. It does not matter how you like to see him. 
It only matters that we see him as he is. Because he's real and he exists and he came. And and if we will see him as he is and believe him as he is, then his blood is sufficient to save us also. So that he can bear the penalty that we deserve so that we can live. He's not a genie, you know, I mean, he's, he's not, you hear preachers all the time, talking, he's not just your fire insurance. I mean, you know, people believe in Jesus for all sorts of things. You know, because he makes them feel good when they're down. He does that. But he also makes, brings us low when we get too tall. What is Jesus to you? My, my prayer as we study the book of Mark is that we'll get to know Jesus as he is and that we will all, by the power of the Holy Spirit, bring our view of Christ into conformity with his existence, with who he is, that we would experience Jesus as he is, that we would believe in him as he is, and that we would be saved by him. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the gospel of Mark, uh, that you inspired this unlikely guy to write this incredible story so that we could experience uh, your son so that we could get to know him in a way that we never have before, and so that his work and his life could be new and fresh for us in a way that it's never been. Lord, I pray that we would understand Jesus has come, and all that that means for our lives and for our hearts, that, that, that it means that we are unworthy and incapable of ever attaining to anything that is of any value to you, but that you have come in Jesus to do for us what we could not do for ourselves. And so I pray today that we would be trusting in you to do it for us. That we would not be trying to be better. That we would not be trying to fix our problems. But that we would be coming to you to be washed, to be cleansed, to be purified. Lord, may the the person of Jesus and his work on the cross, may it condemn us because of our sin. And at the same time, may it free us by your grace. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.